Good morning, Parkview. My name is Wade. I am the pastor for college students here at Parkview. It's a real joy to be serving you today. Most of my time is spent on the U of I campus, and so it's a real joy just to be uh, uh, serving Jesus together with you. So I just count this a privilege and a real joy. So we're going to be at Mark 2, starting in verse 18. Mark 2, 18 to chapter 3, verse 6. And we're looking at uh, this, this whole idea that Jesus uh, brings this new paradigm in how humans relate to God. Jesus brings a new paradigm in how humans relate to God. And one thing I want to clarify as we go through this series called Cross and Crown, or Crown and Cross, uh, we actually believe that this stuff happened. That Jesus was real, and he came in a real time, real place in Palestine, and he brought this revolutionary uh, message of divine grace for broken, bad people. And he, come to, he came to establish his kingdom, which is his rule over all things. And the reason I say that is because uh, recently I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is definitely not a Christian, and I love the guy. He's amazing. And our conversation turned to reasons why he's not a Christian. And his main one is that this stuff feels like fairy stories that you could find in a children's bookstore, flip open, read, maybe it makes you feel good for a little bit, but in the end it makes no difference. Uh, and we actually do not believe that is true. We actually believe that if you miss out on what Jesus is doing, you miss out on something fundamental to what it means to be human. Jesus brings a new paradigm on humans relating to God. And so that is why we need this word from Mark, because this, uh, this word from Mark uh, here in this text is going to show us what this new paradigm is all about. And so let's turn now to God's word. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to read, actually, uh, verses 21 and 22, and I'm going to pray for us. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 21. Jesus says this, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Holy Father and loving Lord, we approach your word needing to listen to you very closely. This word from you is good and true and totally reliable. And so, Father, we honestly admit that our hearts are unworthy of your mercy and beauty, and yet we have received adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, your Son. So thank you for that. And so now we ask as your desperate children, please come by your Spirit in a special way to convict us, challenge us, call us to yourself, convert us, and comfort us by your Word. I pray in particular, Father, for those of us right now who are feeling the weight of, of shame and guilt before you, and those of us who are carrying around deep burdens, and we feel broken by life right now, I pray specifically for those people that Jesus, 
you would speak to their heart and you'd give them a fresh word of comfort. And so because we're praying these things, we need your spirit to fill me and help me. And we turn now to Jesus Christ in your word. Help us see how awesome Jesus really is. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So have you ever had a uh, paradigm-shifting moment in your life? Maybe you were uh, thinking, feeling, and relating one way, and all of a sudden kind of like that light bulb turns on and just, boom, big switch in your life, and you start going the different way, a new paradigm. When I was in seminary, my wife, Claire, she's awesome. We both were in seminary in St. Louis uh, before coming here. And uh, so this happened to me like all the time, okay? I went to seminary thinking that I knew like what the Bible was about. I didn't really know what the Bible was about. And so I would go to a classroom, and I would think I'd understand what this particular section of the Bible was supposed to be. And then I went, and by the end of the lecture, I'd walk out, and like I would have like this new paradigm that like I never, I never knew. I didn't know. And all of a sudden, like, now I knew. And uh, so for some of us, it probably has happened in education, maybe when you had a major in college. It just was all these light bulbs, you know, flipping on. As I'm in uh, ministry with college students, it's exciting to see that kind of stuff happen. Uh, but for some of us, it's not in the realm of ideas. It's in the realm of relationships, isn't it? Uh, some of us have uh, certain ways that we thought uh, were right and good, and then something changed, right? Uh, for those of us, the change from uh, going from single to dating, engaged, and then being married— uh, I don't know about you, but I thought I, would, I was going into uh, marriage ready and prepared. I was going to be a great husband, and then actually got married, and just uh, shocking how selfish I was. And uh, we all know what that's like. So that, that old paradigm of how I was thinking about myself, it had to go if my marriage was going to be stabilized and grow towards health. And uh, you know what that's like. Maybe for some of you, it's parenting, right? So you're, you're married, and all of a sudden, having a kid for the first time, or a second kid, third kid, fourth kid, fifth kid, and all of a sudden, boom, paradigm shift in terms of your time, your energy, all that stuff is just shifting. Or if you're a parent, and then finally the kids leave, it's learning how this new paradigm of I'm now no longer, I'm a parent, but I'm not really like a parent full-time. Like, what do I do? And, and it's something I've had to see my parents walk through, which has been really cool for me to see them lean on Jesus in the midst of that, because my brother and I have now left the home. So. so we all know what it's like to go from an old paradigm and then have a paradigm shift into a new paradigm. But I want to talk about something uh, so much more fundamental and important than all those things. And it is this, is that we, we need a paradigm shift in our relationship with God. Because we too often function on this, this old paradigm, which I call the prophet paradigm. But before we get to that, I just want to say, here's the big idea is this, okay, of this sermon. This is where we're going. Jesus brings us the new paradigm of how we are to relate to God. Jesus brings the new paradigm of how we are to relate to God. And that's what we read in Mark 2, 21 to 22. Uh, there's the uh, old wineskins, new wine, the new cannot fit into the old. Jesus is bringing something totally different than what was in his religious context of his day. Jesus does not just uh, add on to what was going on in his culture. He's doing something radically different. And here are the two things that Jesus brings in this paradigm. You ready? The first is this. Jesus brings joy because he's our groom. The second is this. Jesus brings rest because he is our 
restorer. He brings joy because he's our groom. He brings rest because he is our restorer. Now, let's be honest, is that we have a problem that is seen in this text, and it's that humans are prone to live under this old paradigm of profit when it comes to relationship with God. Prophet being P-R-O-F-I-T, not prophet as in the person that speaks for God, okay? The old paradigm of prophet. And my, the reason I bring this up is because I have a, a dear friend, and we're studying through the gospel of Mark, okay, with, through that study guide that uh, Parkview has provided. And we got to this section, and my friend is going through this paradigm shift in his relationship with Jesus. It's super exciting. And what's happening is he's looking at the Pharisees, and what he said was, Wade, the Pharisees are living in this whole kind of prophet paradigm. I was like, what do you mean? Well, look down with me, starting in verse 19. Verse 19. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 18. My bad. Verse, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But Jesus, your disciples, uh, they're not fasting. What makes you so special that uh, your disciples get kind of the freebie pass on fasting? What makes Jesus so unique? Maybe some of you are even asking that question today. Uh, the, the, the issue of Jesus compared to the other world religions. Is there something really fundamentally different between Jesus and Muhammad? and Buddhism, et cetera, et cetera. Is there something different that Jesus brings? And, and this text says, yes, actually. That when Jesus was in his religious context, what was happening was there are these religious teachers called Pharisees. And the Pharisees functioned under this prophet paradigm, which is what? It is this, is that we as humans are prone to relate to God as if he is a divine boss, and we clock in and clock out our certain amount of hours of hard work and after a long period of time, if we perform well enough, uh, our divine boss of a God will give us uh, our deserved pay. And so whether or not you are a Christian, we all know what it's like to have uh, certain forms of morality or moral standards that we want to live up to. And we think that that is the way in which we have a right relationship with God, is as we obey God and do good things for Him, He responds to us by liking us more, loving us, giving us rewards, and maybe every so often He gives us a cool little bonus check. That is the prophet paradigm. And what happens when we live under this prophet paradigm is this. It leads to a life of joylessness, burden, brokenness, and boredom. Joylessness, burden, brokenness, and boredom. You see, the, que the question underlying, the question that uh, people are asking Jesus of, do, your, do John's disciples fast, Pharisees fast, you don't fast, is this issue of... Uh, what makes you different, Jesus, from this whole prophet paradigm? Because that's how the people function. See, the Pharisees, uh, they were kind of like, uh, the way I think of it is, you know the protein shake guy that's like at CrossFit? He's the dude that's like had way too many protein shakes. Like, you have protein shakes, and then you have like protein shakes, which is like powder on powder on like powder powder. And like the guy's just like super swole, okay? Now say if you're at uh, CrossFit, okay? And at CrossFit, I'm not a CrossFit guy, by the way, and if you are, we love you. Uh, <clears throat> there's no judgment here. Uh, but my friend, my dear friend John, uh, John McHale, community groups pastor here. He's become one of my best friends. Uh, he's a CrossFit guy. 
and, uh, but he's not the protein shake guy. Anyways, so but John explained to me that in, at CrossFit, what happens is that uh, you, uh, you can do like a lifestyle workout, and then you can do like the crazy insane type of workout, okay? I don't know what it's called. What is it called? Does someone know? There's like a lifestyle workout? Anyways. All right, so the lifestyle workout is for people kind of like me who just want to stay like fit but don't want to go like, you know, up the ante, okay? And so if you could imagine, you know, doing squats, maybe you have like 120, 130 or something, not too heavy, and you're just doing, you know, a few of those, okay? You're feeling good. Now, a Pharisee, the protein guy, he comes by, he's like, 130 ain't nothing, bro. And then he like adds like 345s on both sides. And so like your bar's like doing rainbow arc, you know what I'm saying? And it's like bending about to snap and then like your legs break. Uh, that's what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day, okay? The law was given for God's people to guide them in relationship to him. The Pharisees had made it a matter of life or death salvation. And so if you did not follow their scrupulous rules to what uh, the law prescribed, whether it's fasting or whether it's Sabbath, which is the next thing we're going to see, you would be under condemnation of death, and you would not be in right relationship with God. They were the protein shake guys of the first century. They were putting these burdens on people, It led to joylessness and boredom and brokenness. Now here's here's, here's the deal, okay? What's it like to be bored with Jesus? Because if we're honest, many of us are experiencing that right now. Jesus has become so so familiar with us that maybe we come here on Sundays and we— we keep showing up and doing our, our duty, and we, we come on Sundays, and maybe we go to a community group. Uh, but there's no sense of vibrancy and love for Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you are experiencing that right now. Now, let me tell you something. Boredom with Jesus is not Jesus' fault. So just, just so we're clear right now, uh, what's happening uh, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the Father is so amazed at how awesome His Son is. And the Son is rejoicing the Father by the power of the Spirit. Jesus is the most wonderful, glorious, radiant, beautiful person you could ever meet. And so if we're bored with Jesus, friends, it is a sign that something's gone wrong in our heart and we are functioning under the prophet paradigm. God has become our divine boss. Because think of it, when you go and meet with a boss— I'm assuming as you walk to his office, uh, you are not experiencing the fullness of joy in your heart, right? Uh, And what happens with your boss is probably very familiar. Uh, You're doing very well in these areas. You need to improve in these areas. And uh, my next appointment's coming in three minutes, so bye-bye. And and that same feeling is kind of what we have towards God. And so uh, a life of, of fasting in which we're pursuing spiritual disciplines, which are given to us, by the way, as, in a sense, spiritual dependencies, where we depend on Jesus and offer our lives to him in neediness, asking for him to fill us with his love and mercy. But no longer are, is fasting or praying or anything like that, is it filled with joy and vibrancy and love and, and said it's just rote and it's boring day after day. And Jesus comes to bring, friends, a new paradigm. And what is that paradigm? Well, the first thing is that he brings joy. He brings joy to those who are broken and bored. Look down, starting in verse 19. So Jesus responds to this question, why do do your disciples not fast? Well, he says this, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Why? Why? 
Because when the bridegroom comes, it's time to party. It's time to experience the fullness of joy. In first century context, weddings were not like how we have weddings. Weddings were a week-long ordeal. Could you imagine a week long? And the whole town would shut down, and everyone would be invited to this wedding party. And it was just a time of lavish feasting and joy. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He is a bridegroom come for his bride. There's something even deeper coming uh, here, is that the image that Jesus uses is that he is a bridegroom, right? Well, actually, the story of the Bible is God uh, head over heels in love with his bride. And God creates humanity, his bride, and puts, it in, puts them in his perfect home and fills the home with lavish gifts. And in the Garden of Eden, there is flourishing and delight between humanity and God. But the story of the Bible takes a radical turn because uh, humanity decides to hand over the divorce papers to God and instead goes and pursues spiritual adultery numerous times over throughout the Bible. Idolatry in which we make a good thing an ultimate thing that ends up crushing us, that whole thing is called spiritual adultery in the Bible. Because over and over, one of the most prominent images of God in the Old Testament is that he is a groom that loves his wayward bride. There's a time in the story of the Bible in which God's people, their spiritual whoredom had gone so out of hand and had gone so crazy that they were actually sent into exile. But in the midst of their foolishness and the weight of their brokenness that they had uh, signed the divorce papers and rejected God as their husband, God says this over them in Isaiah 62. This is a promise to God's people. He says, there's a day when the bridegroom will rejoice over the bride, so also shall your God rejoice over you. And then in Hosea, if you're not familiar with the story of Hosea, just read that Old Testament book. It's beautiful. But in Hosea, there's this promise that there's a coming a day when God himself, it says, will betroth his people to himself forever. God says, I will betroth you in my righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know me, says the Lord. And in Jesus Christ, that day has come. And that's why Jesus' disciples are not fasting, but they are feasting and there is fullness of joy because they realize God has come for his bride. You remember that image I, I share with you about what's it like, the feeling that you have when you are walking to your boss's office? Can we just flip that picture and, and what, what, is it, what is it like? Uh, the weddings that you've been to, have you ever seen the look on the face of the bride when she's walking down the aisle? And just imagine those feelings of delight and expectation and joy in this future marriage is about to happen. But have you ever turned and then looked at the face of the groom, right? And if you look at the face of the groom, what is it? It's like this. There's a picture at my wedding that was taken at my wedding, and uh, <coughs> it just was perfect. Just, they, uh, it was like from this angle, and it was when I was first seeing Claire for the first time, my wife. And uh, I just was so happy. And this photo just captures that moment. And I'm looking at Claire, and I'm drawn to her beauty. And I'm so excited for this moment to happen where we're going to become husband and wife. 
But friends, there's something actually radically different that happens in the gospel. And it is this, that the bride that's coming down, us, is not actually very beautiful. We are broken in sin. We have addictions to pornography. We have workaholism addictions. We are shattered by sin. And Jesus, our bridegroom, you know what his face is? He's pumped. Why is that? Because he's come to bring a new paradigm. Theologian Michael Reeves, one of my favorite theologians, says this. At a wedding, there's this phrase said in which the uh, bride says this to her groom. All that I am, I give to you, my groom, and all that I have, I share with you. Now, this is a profound mystery, but what's happening here is a signpost to the cross. For on the cross, we share with Christ all that we have. On the cross, we gave to Jesus all of our sin, all of our death, all of our shame. The loving bridegroom took the sorrows and sicknesses of his bride down to death to bury them forever. Get this, friends. Get this. Please lean in and hear this. Out of sheer and boundless love for his bride, our groom took the sickness of his bride upon himself with all the consequences of her sin. What does it mean now when Jesus turns to us and he says, My beloved, all that I have is now yours. All of my beauty and perfection and glory and love is now lavished upon you. This is the very heart of the gospel. It is a new paradigm. It is not boredom. It is not drudgery. It is not about humans doing something good within themselves to present themselves acceptable to God. The gospel is the good news that people are very bad. We, you and I, do not present ourselves as righteous but it's very broken, very needy. And Christ comes to us in love and brings us to himself. That is the love of our bridegroom. And friends, that is why we celebrate. That is why we have joy. Is your life marked by the joy that we have in the gospel? Do you know the rejoicing that happens? Because here's the deal. If you're functioning in the old paradigm and you're bored, guess what you can't do? You cannot fix your heart by telling it like, okay, try harder now like God more, you have to be captured by a superior beauty. And that superior beauty is Jesus Christ coming for you and offering all of himself on the cross for your sin and your shame and covering it and welcoming you to himself. We have a bridegroom who has come for his bride. This is the good news of the gospel. So not only is that the first part of our paradigm, but Jesus brings a second part, right? Not only is he our groom, but he's also our restorer who brings our rest. Read with me in Mark, starting, uh, Mark 2, starting in verse 23. Then there came a Sabbath day when Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, Jesus' disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, because they're functioning on the prophet paradigm, Look! Look at your disciples! They're doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. Because the, the, the Pharisees thought the Sabbath was actually a, a means by which they cre- could create 39 more uh, stipulations that people had to follow in order to find rest, which sounds exhausting. So this day of rest, which is what a Sabbath is, a day of resting from work, so you give yourself in worship to God, it actually become a, a day of work because you had to follow 39 different stipulations the Pharisees had laid out in in this culture, which would have been exhausting and burdensome. And then Jesus, because he's so awesome and brilliant, 
he, he looks at these religious teachers who were like the Bible masters of their day. And he says, have you not read in your Bibles what David did? Verse 25. When he was in need and was hungry. Can we say that together again? In need and was hungry. He and those who were with him. How David entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest. And he ate the bread of presence. Which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. And so Jesus said to them, from this story, can't you see, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees had flipped it. The Sabbath had become a place of enslavement for people instead of a place of rest and joy and blessing. Jesus comes and says, I bring a new paradigm. I come to bring rest to a culture that is burdened by exhaustion and restlessness. Friends, Jesus is our restorer. Uh, one of the things that I have uh, loved being on staff is working with the high school staff. Both Todd and Mike DeWard are just amazing guys. Love them. But one thing that they have notified me about is how in this culture, there's this dynamic at play between parents and kids. And it's that parents expect that their kids should uh, be able to memorize and play a Bach concerto by age of four, dunk a basketball by age 10, and then have a perfect score on the ACT by the age of 12. And what they have notified me about and that I'm starting to see is that there is this uh, culture of restlessness within Iowa City. And, and even today, there are many of us who are inches away from burnout because we don't know that the Sabbath was made for man. That actually it's a genius of Jesus in his love for you that you are a dependent creature and the Sabbath is a signpost of what? That God is in control of your life and that you can take a day off of work because he's in control and you are not. And you are more than your work and your work does not define who you are, but the work of Jesus does. And Jesus comes to bring rest. And it's not just parents and kids, it's college students. One thing that I'm getting concerned about, and our staff would, would testify that, to this, I love our college students, but they're going bonkers right now. They're, they're studying like crazy. They've got like seven part-time jobs. And uh, the consistent theme that I'm seeing as I meet with students is what? I'm tired. It's like week seven, and I'm tired. Now, I remember when I was in college, for some reason when I would say that, there'd be like this older person that would say, just wait till you graduate. I'm like, how's that gonna help me right now, bro? Like, I get that. Okay, sure. But like, they're like, somehow if I did, oh, wait till you graduate, then all of a sudden, like, I'll feel like better. Nope. Uh, but it's true, though, isn't it? You probably look at the college students, and you're like, I wish I could go back to college because that's so much free time. Well, they have free time, but they're just as exhausted as you. We live in a culture of exhaustion. In America, we have so created work to be the centerpiece of our lives and our identity. And what it's done is that it has crushed us. And some of us don't experience the vibrancy of love for Jesus because we don't really believe that he has come to bring a Sabbath rest in our hearts. Because there's something that Jesus brings to you that a good night's sleep and a Tempur-Pedic never and it's that your identity can be secure apart from what you do because of his sufficient work on your behalf 
before God. Friends, are you exhausted today and burdened by life? Jesus comes to bring you rest. Look down again, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man. David, what did he do? He was hungry. He was needy. And that's why he can go in and do something that was quote-unquote unlawful on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was made for needy, broken people. And so if you're broken today by your exhaustion and you're tired and burned out, Jesus Christ is for you. He comes to you to give himself to you to bring rest to your soul. That is what Jesus offers to you in the gospel. Friends, this is good news. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the King of rest. We come to Jesus to find rest. Come to Jesus to find rest. See, the Sabbath in that culture was used as a burden to smash, just like the protein shake Pharisees, right? Uh, but Jesus comes to lift and to serve the needy and broken. Well, this actually carries on in the next section. Look down with me, chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus enters a synagogue on the Sabbath and a man standing there with a withered hand. And so the Pharisees are watching him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Is Jesus going to do something unlawful? His disciples were doing something unlawful. We know that's bad because we function on the old paradigm. But now will Jesus join in the reindeer games? Here's, and here's what happens. They watch Jesus so that they could, they could accuse him. In verse 3, Jesus looks at the man with the withered hand. He says, come here. And as the man's coming, he turns to the Pharisees. Can we listen to this, friends? turns to the Pharisees and says this, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Why were they silent? Because they had functioning on an old paradigm that used the Sabbath to crush and to kill and to harm the needy. But Jesus comes to bring rest and restoration. And look at this. This is the very climax of this whole section. Verse 5, so Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, grieved that they had been functioning on this old paradigm in the midst of him bringing this refreshing new paradigm of joy. He's angry and grieved at the hardness of heart, and, and he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And friends, you know what's about to happen in this moment? Jesus knowing what he just said. Can we look down again at verse 22? What does Jesus say in verse 22? He says, uh, if you have new wine and it comes in contact with old wineskins, what happens? There is bursting, but not just bursting. What happens to the wine? The new wine is destroyed. Jesus understands something, friends. That if he's going to bring a new paradigm that's going to restore what is broken in this world, and there's a group of people functioning in an old paradigm, for him in this moment to reach out and heal this man is to sentence him to himself to destruction. And so he reached out his hand and touches the man and looked down at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately, immediately held counsel with the Herodians, the political leaders of the day, so that they could destroy him. What's happening in this final section, friends, it's pointing to something so much deeper than just a man getting his hand healed. It is that God is in the flesh in Jesus Christ, coming to bring a whole new paradigm. And this paradigm is that God has come to broken people. And for Jesus to reach out his hand to touch and heal a man 
it meant destruction for himself. Friends, this is pointing to a deeper reality, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you see what's happening at the cross? Is that God in his love to reach out and to heal us meant destruction for himself. Jesus Christ to reach out to us in healing meant destruction for himself, for that's what the Pharisees did, didn't they? If you keep flipping and you get to the later part of Mark, what happens? The Pharisees are nailing Jesus Christ to a cross because the old paradigm cannot fit with the new paradigm. And if old wineskins come in contact with a new wineskin, the new wine is destroyed for Jesus to heal us, friends. It meant his destruction. This is the heart of the gospel. The perfect, wonderful, loving bridegroom offering himself in deep love for his broken, wayward bride. Friends, do you know this Jesus? Are you broken right now and in need of healing? Do you see the cross of Jesus and how wonderful it is in which Jesus Christ himself offers himself to human need and the depth of our brokenness, he goes deeper than our sin so he can lift us high all the way up into the Father's arms. Friends, this is the love of Jesus Christ, a bridegroom to which all the fairy stories that we love are pointing to, a prince who at great cost to himself has won back his damsel in distress. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the new paradigm that Jesus Christ is bringing through the gospel. So are you coming to Jesus with your boredom and asking him, Jesus, please, I want to fall back in love with you. You know what that's like, right, in marriage? There's those seasons where things get dry, right? But there's always that need to come back and to fall back in love with the one, your beloved. Friends, are you broken? Are you right now under the burden of busyness, and exhaustion because you've given yourself to work and it's crushing you. Friends, do you know that Jesus Christ has come to this world for people like you and people like me? He's come for the broken. He's come for sinners, not the righteous. So come to him in your need and Christ takes you upon himself and through his own destruction on the cross, he heals you and restores you in right relationship with God. That is the gospel.